0: I'm delighted to be joined by Craig O'Shaughnessy, who is Director of Brain Gain Tennis, Strategy Analyst for ATP Tour, and also works for the Italian Tennis Federation. What have you been up to in the last few months? Because you're, you're a busy man. We, we saw you in the box for Berrettini for, for Wimbledon. Um, you've been coaching recently Alexei Popperin, the, the Australian who's had a, a fantastic year.
1: Yeah, um, Alexei and I joined back together so in 2019, before COVID, I was on his team doing the strategy analysis and uh, since rejoined as his primary coach. So there was the Cincinnati, Winston-Salem, U.S. Open run and then Indian Wells. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's intriguing to be back on tour and, and uh, you know, seeing the crowds come back, seeing tennis come back, seeing the players play amazing tennis. And um, also doing a lot of writing for the ATP Tour. Uh, I just did the the final in um, Paris, but uh, it was great to see Novak serving and volleying in that match. And you know, I do a lot of analysis on serve and volley and coming to the net. And you know, people in today's game think you can't you know consistently serve and volley or even regularly serve volley and Novak just did it so you know the goalposts will change again it's like well you can't do it against this opponent or for this long but um, it's really good to see players using the entire court to come forward so it's what I'm working with Alexi um, you know every day we would start practice where I would feed him volleys I put my racket bag out as the target I'd feed him volleys so,
0: so it's interesting you say that because uh, I remember actually couple of years ago when Raonic made the Wimbledon final and his sessions were starting off with him hitting a couple of ground shots coming forward but generally that's against the grain of players period so is that quite hard to convince players early on in a session that that's what they need to do?
1: You know not at all with Alexi we do a lot of analysis you know he's a young kid he's 22 he's very much into looking at video and studying the statistics and You know he's six foot five and he's very good uh moving around the court and very good coming forward so when we start with volleys um we're also sending a message that this is what you need to be doing in your matches we value it so much that it's going to start our practice sessions so We start with volleys at targets, really, really simple. Then we'll do approach and volley, then approach and volley and overhead, and then I'll mix in a couple of volleys. Um, And then next, after that, we do serving. And next, after that, we do returning. And then the last 15 to 20 minutes, that's when we get into some rallying and getting some grooving. So we kind of flip it in order and say, what is the most important thing for you? It's getting to the net, it's your serve and it's your return. So we prioritize those three things and uh, it's been working very well for him.
0: You mentioned you're a strategy analyst. For anyone out there that that doesn't know what Craig O'Shaughnessy does,
1: what actually is a strategy analyst? Um, Tennis looks like pinball. It looks random. You know, the ball goes here and there. You know, a ball is hit to the ad court. Sometimes a player will take it as a backhand. Sometimes they run around and hit a forehand. Sometimes they magically appear up at the net. And, you know, a long time ago when I was starting out coaching, I wanted to know the patterns of play of our sport. So I do a lot of video analysis, I use a program called Dartfish, within that there is a, um, an element called match tagging. So what happens is uh, the match is played, it's tagged, and, and tagging means there's buttons to the side that have different functionality. So it's kind of a start-stop and there's a button for forehand winners and backhand errors and first serves in and serve location and A, B, C, D at the back of the court so that when a match ends, I'm able to say, okay, all I want to see is your first serves out wide in the juice court. And you watch one of them, one after the other, and all of a sudden, you know, things that you're doing well or or possibly things you're not doing well, they all appear because you're grouping together the patterns of play. Show me all the backhand errors. Let's say there's 15 in the match. Ten of them are probably the exact same. Maybe it's hitting the ball late, going down the line. Maybe it's a bad decision. Maybe it's a slice into the net. But once you identify the patterns of play, you're then able to say, okay, you're better in this area. You're better hitting a run around forehand than a backhand. You're better coming to the net. Um, so you know it, it's there's there's foundations that run right through tennis that apply to the number one player in the world and also the top 50. But one of the best things about our sport is, you know, there's there's different playing styles. You can come forward more, you can stay back more, you can hit heavy spin. You know, you can be Kevin Anderson, six foot nine, and make top ten in the world. You can be Diego Sportsman, five foot nine and make top ten in the world. So the beauty of our sport is there's a lot of different styles, but there are also underlying elements that apply to everyone and I study those elements and I study you know the rally length um, of our sport and that's that that
0: it's that shift I was going to ask you how many years have you been have you got the data and and is there a, a real shift from the data that you've got the first year to the data that you've now got
1: 2015 was the first year that rally length data was available it was at the Australian Open Um, IBM put it together. They don't even know why they put it together. It, you know, I I go to the stat sheet that year and I see zero through four, five through eight and nine plus. I'm like, what in the world is this? So I do, I dig around, I go and see IBM, please explain this to me. One of the things that we see it's, you know, it's called um, how many shots in the rally, which is a misleading label because it's actually the ball hitting the court, not the ball hitting the strings. So for example, Barry, if I serve to you, you hit it back to me, I hit a winner. That's a, th- that's a rally length of three. On the next point, I served you, you hit it to me, and I make an error. That's a rally length of two. So it's the ball hitting the court. At the Australian Open in 2015, 70% of all points were in zero through four, 20% were in five through eight, and only 10% are in nine. were in the nine plus range. Um, it's basically the same today. You know, some courts and some surfaces and some players are a little bit quicker than that. Some are a little bit slower. And, you know, there's a couple of reasons why they're slower. You know, we talk about the court and when they lay the paint down, they paint that final um, top surface, the amount of sand that goes into that paint is going to make that court faster or slower. But a real huge element in court speed these days is the ball. How quickly the ball fluffs up and how soft the ball is. And, you know, coaching at Indian Wells, you know, you, you, you crack the can of balls and you open it up and you're used to like a, you know, a really hard ball that's hard to push your fingers into, but the ball at Indian Wells was, you know, quite soft. You can really kind of push it in. And then after just a couple of minutes play, because the court surface is, is um, you know, it's like sandpaper out there, it fluffs up so easily. So the ball has a lot more to do with it um, than people think. A lot of times we think it's just, just the court surface, the the ball's a big factor.
0: In terms of some of the other data, you mentioned about the the, the rally lengths in terms of nought to four, five to eight and and nine plus. Is there a difference now because it, it looks to me that Federer kind of led the way a few years ago, the way he's changed his game. You mentioned Djokovic. He's definitely coming in more. And that Wimbledon final against Berrettini was noticeable. Djokovic came in a lot. I don't know how many times he served and volleyed, but you probably got that off the top of your head. I think Berrettini came forward once. I think he served and volleyed once, and that was a serve and drive volley. So is there a big difference now in terms of the amount of points that are won in the forecourt than, than maybe five or six years ago?
1: Well, the final with Paris... You know, it's a case study right there. You go back and look at the Australian Open final, where Novak um, basically had his way with Medvedev in that final. And, and what he did really well was he attacked Medvedev's forehand and he attacked it early. So you know, Medvedev, you know, he looks like uh, you know an octopus out there, and arms and legs are flying everywhere. But he's amazing with what he does with the ball. Very consistent with the ball. The forehand is the side that will break down more. So you go back to Australia, where Novak attacked that immediately. It had, a, and it had an ongoing effect, um, and he goes away with that final. At the US Open final, he didn't do it at all. Why? Pressure? It's a good question. You know, after working with Novak for three years, you, you would think that you would go back to that Australian Open final. You'd basically watch it all. You know, if I would have every point that Novak won in that match. I would I would turn that into a highlight reel, and I would say, Novak, you know, here's... Here's a 10-minute video of all your serve points one. Here's another 10-minute video video of all your return points one. And here's another five-minute video of all Medvedev's forehand errors. It just didn't look like that was fresh in his mind at all. It almost looked like he disregarded that information because I didn't pick up in the least that he was going after Medvedev's backhand. And and, and in fact, the analysis piece I wrote on the ATP final was that Novak hit many more backhands and forehands in that match, and that's be- that was to Medvedev's benefit. So when we fast forward now to Paris, um, and Novak wins, in the interview afterwards, he's like, well, you know, we did some analysis and we saw things that he wanted, and that was a real change of tactics. There was a real response to, to the loss. So, you know, Novak wins fairly comfortably in Australia, um, doesn't really try and copy and paste that, but when he loses that next match at the US Open final, he definitely did his homework and came in a lot. And it's exactly what he needed to be doing.
0: So he actually showed he's human.
1: Yeah, um, you know, the, the expectations uh, weigh very heavily. And when you're chasing history that hasn't been made for decades in our sport, you know, only Novak really can, can answer that question. But, you know, when we look at it, chasing the gold medal and chasing the grand slam so close together, um, it took its toll. And, you know, you, you read the body language. And, you know, Novak at the Olympics, you know, his body language, he snapped there, you know, breaking the racket and throwing the racket into the stands. And, you know, it's obviously a very difficult time to try and keep, you know, all the ducks in a row and, and, and win those matches. And it was just simply a bridge too far. And then we get to the U.S. Open final where another racket goes. And, you know, Novak had his best isn't in that room in the house. He's not an angry player out there. He's he's not quick to, you know, draw back and fire a ball into the stands and and you know destroy a racket. When Novak's on, he's locked onto the opponent. One of the things that I don't think people recognize enough because it happens behind the scenes is how well he scouts opponents. How well he goes through the checklist of, okay, where is this opponent weak? You know, is it the second or
0: third? I was going to ask you, does a player, when they're scouting an opponent, are they sitting in their hotel room and watching a two-and-a-half-hour match? Or is it just literally, as you mentioned,
1: they're given clips of certain points? Or, or maybe it's a bit of both. Typically, it's not going to be the two-and-a-half-hour match. Uh, what you want to do, or what I want to do as, as the strategy coach on the team, is, you know, let's say there's 150 points in a match. I need to show the player within 20 points what, el- what else is happening in the match. So we want to distill. My job is to distill that. So,
0: so getting away from analysis by paralysis or paralysis by analysis or whichever way around <laughs> it is.
1: You're exactly right. We can't even get it out. You're exactly right. You want to distill the information. You want to show, basically, if you show a player, you know, uh, the opponent's making a running uh, forehand error out wide in the juice court, and you show it to them once, they don't really in their mind recognize that this is a repeatable pattern. But if, you, if the very next point they see, you know, smells and looks the same, it's like, okay, I get that. And then you, you show them three, it's like wide forehand error, wide forehand error, wide forehand error, then they're like, okay, I get it now. So, I don't need to show the player all 15 of those wide-flowing errors. I can show three, distill that information, and move on to another facet of the game plan that I want them to employ. So, um, you know, almost never are we watching a full match. It's always, it's always short, and most of the video video clips I make are between two and three minutes. And if I can't get my message across in two or three minutes of video, I'm not doing a good enough job. And that will be supplemented with, um serving uh strategy so you've got basically you've got first serve strategy and you've also got a different strategy in the juice court and the ad court and we talk in primary and secondary patterns
0: for me one of the biggest patterns that looks like that is absolutely a must the first point of a game or or the big points are on the juice side how many times we see the pattern of play wide
1: serve forehand line
0: um, am I right in that thinking? Is is there evidence that shows that? Yeah, you're
1: exactly right, Barry. When I go to um, the statistics that uh, I create through my personal tagging program, and I call it a match intelligence report, the first data point that I'm going to go and look at is did the player have a positive win-loss ratio in the 0 through 4 rally length. So, for example, Barry, you and I play. You win 40 points in 0 through 4. I win 35. You're plus 5 there. And that is the number one indicator on whether you're winning or losing matches. The second data point I'm going to go and look at is how well you did going 15 love or love 15 in your service game. And when you went love 15, were you still able to win those games? So, statistically, you're still above 50%. But losing the first point of the game and going love 15 kind of sets the weather so on a first point of a game you want to first serve in quite often you're serving wide stats show that stats show that yes we're serving wide to pull the opponent off the court um the return's going to come down the middle you've got a forehand and so you either play back behind a running player or you go open court and come in so first serve points in the juice court the primary video highlight reels i'm making are a it's it's a one-shot rally, so there, there's a return error. Um, it's a three-shot rally, which involves the serve in a serve plus one forehand, and the opponent. Uh, excuse me, the server is going straight to the net. So uh, you know, at love all, you really want to have a set pattern of play. Now, it can change between a wide serve and a T serve, no question. You can even go a body serve, but following it up if the ball does come back with a serve plus one forehand and being aggressive with that is an absolute must. You know, there's a massive difference in the percentage of points won if you start at at love all. I guess, any point score with a first serve and a forehand versus a second serve and a backhand.
0: What are the numbers? I'm testing you here. What are the numbers in terms of if a top 10 player, for instance, wins the first point that they go on to win their
1: service game? If you go 15 love in your service game, you're a top 10 player, you're about 95%. Wow. It's a lock. It's basically a lock. Um, just one point can almost make it all up for you. Now, one of the most fascinating stats that I've ever dug up is at Rowan Garros, Rafa, if, Ra- if Rafa is returning, Andy wins the first point. So the server's now at love 15. Rafa is statistically the favourite to win the game. He will win more games than lose, and all he needs is that first point.
0: Wow, that's fascinating. First base covered. Second base, the next-gen finals. You've been here at this tournament for quite a few years. Are you looking forward to this current crop of eight? And which of these players really impress you? And what are you kind of looking for from Corda, Alcaraz, um, Rune? I mean, we can reel them off that the maybe the, the, to show the
1: way of what potentially we're going to see in the next five years. Carlos Alcaraz is the second coming. Um, I saw him up close in Winston-Salem, round one. Alexi Popper, who I coach, had to play him. So it's a late afternoon match. Um, it's on a smaller court at Winston-Salem. I'm, you know, there's, I'm sitting in the very front row, right on the baseline, and it, um, Carlos ended up winning that match 6-7, 6-1, 7-6. And the level was extremely high from both Alexi and Carlos. Um, and I just couldn't help repeatedly saying to myself, this kid is something special, and I, I really felt like I'm looking at a future number one in our sport. What's,
0: what is it? I, I mean, I guess it's probably fairly obvious, but I think it, it just anyone that we speak to in the sport uh, and even the players that I interviewed before the tournament, Alcaraz is generally the name that they, that they mention in terms of who's going to make a breakthrough, maybe a bold prediction for next year. So, so what is it with the, with the Spaniard that really sticks out?
1: I took some pictures and video during the match, which I normally do anyway, and studied them afterwards. Um, there, there's a couple of things with Carlos. It is, he, probably not since Novak have I seen a player that is so incredibly balanced hitting ground strokes for both forehand and backhand. It is, you know, and Alexi's got a massive serve and, you know, a huge forehand. And it was very, very difficult for Alexi to push Carlos onto his back foot, to you know, to jam him up, to to make him reach for a ball. He is consistently on balance. He is consistently um, not pressured by time. And, you know, the second thing is I don't know who I've seen in the sport that consistently hits the ball as hard as him. I mean the ball comes off the racket like a rocket, the sound of it, the speed of the ball is something to behold. So in order to be um, you know, that balanced, and the other thing that, that, that stood out to me as well is that he gets ready so incredibly early, which again comes to the balance. You know, the, the feet are, are prepared very early, the hands are prepared very early, so that when he's actually hitting the ball, the balance is, is, is there almost every single time. So um, you know, the ball's exploding off his racket. He goes, when you push him out wide to the corners, uh, he uses his hips so well, he he's kind of sets the feet and rotates with his hips into it, so it's not just an arm shot. Um, He's got, you know, cross-court out of the backhand corner, cross-court out of the forehand corner, just locked down. And he can go down the line off those shots. So it's like, what do you do now? I sat in the stands and watched Andy Murray beat him um, at Indian Wells. And what Andy did a great job was, was going off pace by going high, by getting it out of his zone and not giving him any power. And Carlos really hadn't seen that. And, and really struggled with that. You know, there was all of a sudden there was drop shots that shouldn't have been there, and and flying balls. But he wasn't getting, you know, the hard banging ball back and forth. So he's still young. There's some learning to do. You know, in Paris he got shook up in a match against a French guy, and the crowd went ballistic, and he hadn't really felt that. Um, but to be able to hit the ball as, as hard as he can, to not have um, any negative body language that's going to make him lose the match um, on his own. And to be so balanced and so prepared, it's, it's, it's incredible that, that he can do it at such a young age.